Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. V. Kelly Turner, an assistant professor of urban planning and geography at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Kelly and I discuss some of her research around extreme heat and how communities can plan more effectively for it. We discuss why there isn't a governance structure around the issue of heat like there is for air and water. We don't regulate thermal pollution enough, and we discuss some legislative attempts to do just that. We also discuss cool pavement technology and, and some of the unintended consequences of using cool pavements. Kelly also shares her views on how the media communicates the threat of extreme heat. As I said before, I'm just catching up on the heat discussion, and we'll be covering that issue a lot more on the podcast. Okay, upcoming shows. The second episode in the two-part Nantucket series will be out shortly where we talk to experts on how that island is planning to adapt to climate change. I'm also working with the University of Pennsylvania Wharton Risk Center on a two-part series on flooding and risk reduction. Those should be out soon. I'll have more updates at the end, but let's just jump into this conversation with Dr. V. Kelly Turner. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. V. Kelly Turner. Kelly is an assistant professor of urban planning and geography at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are going to talk about heat, extreme heat. But first, let's get a little bit more background on you. What do you do there at the Luskin Center? Yeah, well, I recently stepped up as co-director of the Luskin Center for Innovation, which is a policy-oriented research center that's focused on environment and climate issues. And we do a lot of stakeholder-engaged research on issues that Southern California, California at large, and even federally that matter. Congratulations on that that appointment. And uh, it's going to be a new adventure for you, but uh, congrats on that for sure. Yes. Most of my work is focused on climate adaptation, and I do a lot of work on extreme heat and urban heat. And so that's what I'm excited to talk to you about today. So you were recently out in the field doing research or tell me about that. What were you doing? Yeah, I just got back from the Coachella Valley and Pacoima, which is in the valley here in Los Angeles. And this is part of a Strategic Growth Council climate research grant. And we're teaming up with Partners Conkey Design Initiative. And they've been working with a group out in Oasis called the Oasis Leadership Council. And we are doing some extreme heat measurements out in the field. And this was a really exciting kind of turn for me because Oasis is not conventionally urban. It, you know, people live there and there is urban infrastructure, but it is more of an agricultural and a rural setting. And so we were out there taking some heat measurements and we also were measuring indoor thermal conditions in mobile home parks and also surveying residents about their experience of heat out there. And it was hot. Hmm. When we're out there, what we're doing is we're taking measurements of something called mean radiant temperature, MRT, which is a proxy for the heat load that the body feels. So it's different from, you know, the kind of typical thing that people see, which are these land surface temperature maps. But we're measuring MRT as a composite score. So we're measuring the sun exposure, the reflectance off of nearby objects, the humidity, the wind, a bunch of different factors that all come together to make the experience of heat. Well, you're doing some really interesting work and we're going to dig into that first, but how did you get into this space? So are you technically an urban planner? I I know you're a professor, but what's your background and how did you kind of gravitate toward this heat issue? Yeah. So I got my bachelor's in political science at Wellesley College and I thought, you know, I was going to go into politics as a legislative aide or staffer, but I had written an honors thesis on wildfire and wild, the Healthy Forest Restoration Act under George W. And when I was doing that, I got really, really interested in this idea of urban sprawl and how we urbanize and how that impacts the environment. And so I knew I wanted to go back to grad school and I ended up going to Arizona State University, which was an interesting place to get an education because they had decided that instead of having disciplines, they would have these interdisciplinary schools. So I went into the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning, which mixed geography and urban planning. And I also had this NSF IGERT fellowship in urban ecology and Arizona State had this first school of sustainability. So I was exposed to 
folks from all different backgrounds, ecologists, sociologists, and got really interested in the idea of urban heat first, because geographers have always been examining heat. Well, there's a big climate group at Arizona State, I should say. I should give a shout out to them. The, hmm. the, the early urban heat island research, Arizona State scholars were really vanguards in that space. And in geography, a lot of folks are using remote sensing, part of the land system science tradition, to evaluate heat. And so I first started thinking about claims that were being made among the design community about what we could do with design or not do just with design and how we could use geographic methods and remote sensing to answer those questions. So that's how I first started getting into it. So I did some work out in a place in Tucson called Savano, which is a new urbanist community. And we had done some remote sensing analysis of the thermal conditions there and found that they were able to reduce land surface temperature, increase vegetation, and reduce potable water consumption all all at once through sort of urban design interventions. So, you know, Tucson, and I don't know if you've heard, but we had this record monsoon July and Mm -hmm. the whole place is glowing green. It's really quite dazzling at the moment. So, (laughs) okay. So when you think about having a robust response to to these heat threats, and then you're looking at policies and programs and even the sort of different types of organizations that address it, are we even close to having an integrated approach to dealing with heat. And all those things you described at the school and all the things that you're kind of looking at in urban areas, it just occurred to me, like, is there an integrated approach to kind of doing all these things? No. Uh, (laughs) The short answer is no. Uh, Heat governance is really in its infancy. We don't really have institutions that are ultimately responsible for heat, either at the local level, state level, or even the federal level. A lot of heat governance is sort of ad hoc. And I would say most of the time gets kind of embedded into risk management. So in in hazard response, that kind of framing. So things like protecting workers if it's extremely hot and having recommendations, you know, OSHA recommendations, that kind of thing. But right now, I think there's a lot of conflation. Heat's actually multiple problems. And we talk about heat usually under the auspices of extreme heat. But, you know, I think an important thing to disambiguate is that not all urban heat is extreme and not all extreme heat is urban. And you can't necessarily solve both at the same time. Sometimes you can, but we need institutions to address both the acute problem of extreme heat risk, but also the chronic problem that cities are just hotter than the surrounding regions. All right, let's talk about some of the work that you've been involved in, I think. And I want to come back to this whole idea of just an integrated approach of dealing with heat. But what what is Heat Resilient LA? Oh, yeah. So this is a project that is funded through uh, the Sustainable LA Grand Challenges Program at UCLA and the Pritzker Foundation. And we were charged with coming up with an interdisciplinary approach to addressing one of the sustainable LA grand challenges in the city of Los Angeles. And one of those is to deal with heat. And so this is a really interesting group. The first thing we are doing is trying to understand heat as a like a mobility issue. One problem is that when we think about heat, we look at these sort of static land surface temperature maps and we see, oh, this is a neighborhood that's particularly hot. So that's where we should put our interventions. But actually, you know, maybe people move throughout the day to different places. And what we need to do is address heat where people go. So we're using cell phone mobility data to understand where people move about the city. So we know where they're exposed to heat and also potentially to think about using that data to find out where people naturally go to get cool. So that's one aspect of the project. A second aspect of that project is dealing with land use regulations and governance and trying to understand better what are the different governance levers at our disposal to regulate heat. You know, from a biophysical perspective, if you're a climate scientist, for instance, you can look at a region and you can say, okay, ideally, we would want to put trees here or cool pavement here, but not all that land is legally available to use. So it's important to understand, you know, maybe we can't put a certain intervention here because it's zoned for something else. Or maybe we need to balance, you know, our heat mitigation effort with some other municipal goal. So that's a second sort of aspect of the project. And a third one is doing this community engaged process to understand what communities actually experience when it's hot and what 
would be most useful to them. And to design, we're calling it a uh, more than shade structure that uses closed loop evaporative cooling technology to think, you know, kind of outside the box about how how we can make people more comfortable when it's hot. So you mentioned cool pavements, and I, I this is what I want to dig down to. You you, you yeah. shared one of these. <laughs> this but the, it was a paper, but this whole notion of and it, please do explain what a cool pavement is and all that, and we'll kind of go from there. But and then I, I guess just jump into people think this is a good development, but you've done some research that says, well, you know, there's other consequences to it. Yeah, cool pavement is reflective surfaces that you, it's a reflective coating and material that you can put down on surfaces to reflect solar energy back up and mitigate the urban heat island effect. We've been doing this for a long time on roofs, cool roofs. And Los Angeles was really a vanguard. They had this idea, let's take uh, the the reflective roof sort of technology, let's take it to the streets. Because streets are, cities are in this interesting bind where a lot of the land is private. And here you can kind of reframe streets as this incredibly, incredible public access or public resource so instead of thinking about heats as like this contributor to the urban heat island, what if we could make them a resource where we can mitigate the, the heat island through reflective technologies? The issue, though, is when you start to bring something from a roof down to a surface where people might be, then you have to stop just thinking about reflectivity and albedo. And you need to start thinking about things like thermal comfort. And so I worked with my collaborator, Ariana Medell at Arizona State University. She's invented this incredible gadget called Marty, which measures mean radiant temperature. And what mean radiant temperature is, is a composite score that brings together exposure from incoming solar radiation. I think I was explaining this before. Incoming solar radiation, reflectivity, a whole bunch of different attributes. So we know what people are feeling when they're on a surface. And we went out and we brought Marty out to some of the cool pavement sites in Los Angeles. And we found that a cool pavements do a fantastic job at what they are designed to do, which is combat urban heat island. They are increasing albedo, they're reflecting solar energy, and they're decreasing solar surface temperature. However, part of doing that job means that at certain times of the day, during the midday hours, more energy is being reflected back up. So if a person would be walking on that surface, then they would feel hotter because the solar energy is being reflected back at them. And so that, you know, it's not to say that cool pavements are a bad idea. I certainly when I think they're a good idea and that they have their place, you know, they're fantastic for parking lots, for instance, but that, you know, we really need to be conscious of land use when we put interventions in, because there may be some types of land uses and space uses where we don't particularly want that reflectivity in the midday hours. Oh, I love the study and just the whole law of unintended consequences. And I'm sure when, and let's talk about that. When did you publish this? Was this last year? When was it published? Yeah, this this publication came out in Environmental Research Letters in 2020. And I should moderate an asterisk with what I say, that the reflectivity of the cool pavement was about the same as a concrete sidewalk. So this is a really nuanced discussion we're having. And the other thing I want to say about cool pavements is that I think there's a certain momentum you get behind. It's a really appealing strategy, right? And so we put in our, our paper, we called it, this is not a panacea, right? We're questioning that it's a cure-all for urban heat problems because urban heat is sort of more complicated than just reflectivity. But one of the issues is that something works particularly well and it seems relatively simple and straightforward to do. Although I think LA streets would say, no, this actually isn't as simple as it seems. That it starts to get momentum in the policy arena. And so when that publication came out, I think you know there was some, some controversy because it seemed like we were saying, no, don't do this. And that's, that's not what we were saying. What we were trying to say is let's just, let's talk about it in a more honest, let's have a really open and honest conversation about the trade-offs associated with different interventions. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here because there is, I mean, there's some controversy there. And as I was reading the article that you gave me, the, uh, the mayor of LA, you know, he's prioritizing areas that low income areas and the areas, you know, we're thinking about environmental justice, people that are exposed to pollution and even urban heat pollution, that this is a priority for them. And so the the cool pavement was potentially a strategy to help these people. But in 
it, it could actually have the opposite effect because these are areas too where I guess some mitigating factors too. Well, if you have tree cover along the roads, that might help too. And these might be areas that don't have it. And so when you start thinking about different populations in the city that it could be really bad for them, or did I read that wrong? No. Yeah. I mean, so this is, I actually really like the way you asked that question. So when we're doing urban experiments, really, this is an urban experiment because when, when LA decided to do this, you know, all we had were a few model based studies about what would happen if you had cool pavement. We didn't really know nobody had taken field measurements. So this was really the first time that had happened. But there is an ethical question. Where should we place our urban experiments? Should we place them in low-income communities who need help now and potentially these experiments don't work or at worst make things harder for those communities? Or should we, you know, put these urban experiments in places where people are well-resourced and have high adaptive capacity, for instance? And then there's sort of an optics problem from a policy side of, you know, oh, you're just giving more climate interventions to places that don't really need it. But I think, you know, if you really want to deal with the equity problem, and there's a huge equity problem with heat, the built environment, I mean, this is where the urban part of heat comes in, right? Because there's some some elements of climate, urban climate that are just not controllable. We can't necessarily control the weather, for instance. And that's that's a lot, that has a lot to do with extreme heat events. But there's this other element to it, which is the urban heat. And that's where we get extreme inequity because we've just simply built some neighborhoods to be hotter than others based on the infrastructure. So to circle back, like, you know, if I were talking to the mayor right now, I'd say in those communities, they need shade. Shade is what is going to make people more comfortable, less exposed to heat because shade blocks incoming solar radiation from coming in the first place into the communities. And it also lowers the surface temperature because it's not, surfaces aren't being heated from that direct solar exposure. The thing is that cool pavements are a great tool for doing one thing, which is mitigating the heat that's caused from impervious surfaces, land surface temperature. But if you want to address public health, it's not a substitute. Shade is what people need to protect their bodies. And I guess you got to look at this. It's a toolkit out there. And if you're, you're, there's limited city budgets. And so you're saying, all right, well, should we do a cool pavement or should we plant more trees? You're basically arguing, well, there's things that you should probably do first before you get to the cool pavement stage. Yeah. And one area I would like to highlight with the cool pavement. So right now, this is super exciting. California has this Extreme Heat and Community Resilience Act, AB 585 right now that's under consideration and has strong support. I support it too. I called in, you know, invoiced my my support when they were having the public hearing. But, you know, again, I want to go back to what I said, that heat governance is really in its infancy. And there's some stuff that, you know, I might nitpick within that particular piece of legislation. And the one that stands out to me is the the idea of putting cool pavements in play yards. And this is an area that LA is prioritizing. And I just think that we, maybe that isn't the best idea. You know, if you put cool pavement in play yards and in schools where kids are out, you know, think about when they have recess, it's in the middle of the day. So here you have some of the youngest, most heat vulnerable children out there playing and exerting themselves in the middle of the day. And you propose to put in a surface that is going to be reflecting heat energy back at them, that might actually make the heat problem worse. And so, you know, yes, the surface temperature would be lower. And so there would be less of a burning problem, you know, with their feet and stuff, but a shade sale will do that too. And the shade sale will also improve their thermal comfort. So I would advocate in that situation that maybe the the cool pavement is not the the best way. By the way, we were just in Pacoima taking surface temperature readings. And, you know, the other thing that's really, really bad in play yards, they put down these rubber surfaces that are like bouncy and kind of squishy um, for safety reasons. But those are the hottest of them all. One more, I guess, point, because it seems that let's say a community activist, they get wind of your study and then there's an attempt to put in some cool pavement on a stretch of road there. They could easily point to your to your study to sort of say, this is a bad idea. And so even though you just explain all sort of the nuances and everything, it's just, yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, you probably understand that it, it does tell a compelling story and probably be used in a situation like that. Yeah. You know, I would say two things. 
or three things. One, first of all, that's a persistent problem in research that you do a study and then you put it out there and, you know, people can run with it and use it for all sorts of means. The second thing I would say is you can't cherry pick the finding. The finding that cool pavement increases reflectivity should always come in conjunction with the fact that cool pavement is about the same as concrete sidewalks. And we aren't about to change that right now. We still have concrete sidewalks that are being put into place. You see this all the time. So during this hearing, the the AB 585 hearing on extreme heat, you know, there's only one dissenting group, by the way, and that's the asphalt and concrete lobby. And they dissent on the specific point that they say that cool pavement will reflect energy back at buildings and make buildings hotter. Hmm. Yeah. And so, first of all, I don't think we really know that very well. Because, you know, there's not a lot of research on that particular phenomenon. There are a couple studies. And the one study they're pointing to happens to be one that they funded. So <laughs> big asterisk there. But right. it, the, the answer is it depends. Yeah, if you have a really densely urban area and you put a bunch of cool pavement in, that is possible. It is possible that you could reflect heat back at a building and increase energy use. But if you do it in a more sprawling area, that's probably not going to be the case. But we don't really know enough. I guess on the in defense of cool pavements too is that it seems like there's just a lot more research to be done. Maybe this is satellite data, but like okay, at a micro level, an individual walking along might have elevated heat. But collectively, if you're really doing this on a lot of streets and you think about the amount of urban heat that is not being generated, and even with these buildings, that cooler air flows. And right, I mean, it's just collectively is this less heat down at that level actually better for those buildings and better for people, even though at that very micro level, you might have that elevated heat. So I mean, it seems like just a lot more research needs to be done. So one of the things that's people are working on this issue is how much surface area do you need to have more of a regional effect, especially on things like air temperature, and you need quite a bit of cool pavement to do that. But, you know, I have this other project that we've just started doing on streets and street widths and the the contribution of streets in Los Angeles to, to urban heat island. And we don't really have results that I feel comfortable reporting yet, but it might not be as strong as you think. And the place that is really concerning are parking lots because they have these large surface areas. And so this would be parking lots, it seems would be a really fantastic place to be utilizing cool pavement technology. And you'd mentioned, I want to go to this, but there's another thing that you're doing, but we're, I want to go to AB 585 and dig into that a little bit more because I think it, it lends itself to this broader national discussion. But you're do, there's some street art projects and there's some interesting pain and reflective pain. I, I want to highlight that just even quickly. What's that about? Oh, yeah. That's one of the most fun things I do. So I have a good friend out here who's an art historian, Lizzie Daston, and I had been, you know, I was relatively new to LA and we had seen all the street art in Los Angeles and she was telling me all about it. And I, you know, one day I was thinking about cool pavement and how it comes in lots of different colors. I guess people don't usually, we usually think of like kind of a white gray color, but it can be any color you want it to be. And I just woke up this one morning and thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a mural made out of this stuff. You know, from an artistic perspective, it can exist in both the visible color spectrum, but also in the thermal color spectrum. And so it could also be an interesting opportunity for raising awareness about heat. So we've done a couple of these. We did the first one by um, Eric Scottness is in South Los Angeles at a place called Amped Kitchens. And then the second one we did at Fernangelis Elementary School by a local artist in Pacoima, uh, Christy Sandoval. And yeah, if you're interested, if people are interested, they can see on my Instagram account, Linda underscore collaborative Im- thermal images of, of the cool paint murals. So you can go up to the wall and you'll just feel the paint and it'll be slightly cooler than adjoining to that. I mean, just imagining like how that kind of works. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you don't have a thermal camera on hand, it's hard to uh, see heat, but that's part of it. By the way, that's a nice entry point to one of the problems with heat and heat governance is that heat's really invisible. You you know, it's not like a hurricane. It's not like, you know, a tornado where you have this kind of visible disaster that leaves a scar on the landscape. I mean, heat, you don't see it. It truly is invisible. And so I I guess the broader importance of this is trying to make heat visible to people. I don't know if you picked up when you were in Tucson, but we're known for our murals along buildings, especially in the downtown area. Uh, Have you heard of anyone using that paint and doing any of those murals? I don't know of anyone else using 
thermal paint to do murals no but oh, it would be cool to yeah i'd love to have a network of of those throughout oh, the country <laughs> tucson is known for murals we got i gotta get yeah. on that i gotta All mention right. that to someone and i'll get loop back around with you i want to talk some more about ab 585 and so you talked a bit here and there but what really is the bill supposed to do yeah, I think the bill is supposed to just first establish some sort of collaborative effort, some sort of governance structure around extreme heat. Most of the bill seems focused on, you know, it's not requirements. It's the most of the bill is focused on suggestions and prioritization and coordination. And I think those are all really good things because right now heat governance is really fragmented. You have sort of some some heat governance is occurring in pockets under like um, ex- disaster response. Some is under OSHA and protections for workers. And some is, you know, urban planners are thinking a little bit about trees and shade. And so this is an attempt to say everything is connected, both these acute and these chronic elements of heat. And, and we need to have more of a sort of infrastructure, a governance infrastructure around that. When you get into regulations, and it doesn't sound this regulated at all, but you look at water or air, and we do have a legislation that is very specific, and we cleaned up a lot of these things back in the 70s. And is there anyone, or is this even a practical way of but looking at these thermal issues as a pollution issue? So again, low-income area, they're elevated heat because there's not the tree canopy, but the notion that your exposure to that is almost like being exposed to lead and water. I mean, are people thinking about it that way? No, but this is what prompted me to want to write the the op-ed that I wrote on, on heat as pollution. I mean, first to step back a little bit and have the bigger pictures, like how we frame a problem determines how we govern it. And so when we we frame heat as pollution, that unlocks certain regulatory levers that maybe we hadn't been thinking about before. And so because heat has been, usually we say extreme heat, extreme heat events, that naturally puts us in sort of the hazard bin in terms of framing. Um, And that tells us to do things like create safety nets for people during these sort of acute stress events. What we don't have is heat governance for the other part of heat, which is the sort of chronic exposure that people have because we've built cities in ways that are hot. In some respects, heat's not alone here. I mean, we don't really heavily regulate urban development in in sort of all of the various externalities that come with putting a bunch of impervious surfaces down in a concentrated area. But we do a better job of it with other problems. So for instance, we have the Clean Water Act and we have regulation for things like urban flooding. So if a developer wants to develop an area, they can't just do that and create a bunch of flooding for the neighboring property. They have to show that they're going to kind of cause no harm. That's sort of the nuisance law part of it. But uh, if a developer wants to put down super low albedo asphalt, you know, all over a parcel of land, there's nothing to stop them really from doing that in terms of the thermal burden. By thinking about heat as pollution, that unlocks this ability to say like, hey, wait a second, heat actually can cause a deterioration of thermal conditions in a community. And maybe there should be a limit on that. Okay. So I love the idea of regulating excess heat, excess thermal energy. And of course, Doug, you want any regulation that comes out. And I think you get down how you regulate water and some air and how do communities do that? And there's all sorts of ways, but NEPA, right? And you you develop an environmental impact statement. And is there somehow an equivalent anywhere? Have you heard examples where you're integrating the excess heat that might come out of a development and you embed it within like that impact statement? You sort of say, this is the way that we're mitigating getting it. Yeah, no, I haven't ever heard of that. I don't think it's done. And that would be fantastic if it was done. You know, you could imagine having something like an analog to an MS4 permit or something, or if a city's heat island is sort of out of control, having a consent decree. You know, I'm borrowing language that from how we regulate water and runoff issues in cities. So yeah, and the other, you know, I don't want to forget the other element to what the EPA does is that they have an environmental justice mandate. And we know that heat of of all sort of hazards is so inequitable in terms of its distribution. We've seen, you know, these high profile studies that have been coming out that show that redlined communities are, are overexposed to conditions that are hotter and lack vegetation, for instance. And so there could be corrective action that's triggered to address these sort of inequities and and racial injustice. 
it just seems like finding the nodes to get people to, I guess, take action and stuff. And so the environmental impact statement, which isn't necessarily a great regulatory tool, but at least it's something getting whole cities to retrofit to deal with heat is hard and it's expensive. But if any new development, any retrofits, it's like they have to do it there at that micro scale. And now we've built it in. It's just, I'm not saying it's a great idea. It's just like, how do you get more people to kind of just make it part of the baked in requirements? Yeah, well, this is a broader issue with heat governance. And I think when we think of the term heat governance or or environmental policy in the city, we think of things like the million trees and tree planting programs. But the reality is that every single time we build something, we are making an environmental decision. We are making a decision about that built environment and what it's going to do in terms of heat, in terms of runoff, in terms of particulate matter. And we don't see it that way. We see development as kind of decidedly in this social bin. We're providing um, infrastructure that the city needs, but that's really heat governance. And I I would, nobody's really done this study. (laughs) So, but I think that if we measured the cumulative benefits, the services provided by things like tree planting programs, and then we subtracted sort of the countervailing effect of every time we take down a tree and add impervious surface that, you know, maybe it's just a drop in the bucket, if not net negative. There just needs to be a heat constituency. You think of all the groups that are there at lobbying and advocating for clean water or for clean air. And I mean, the heat kind of comes up, but I just, maybe I'm missing it, but have you heard of sort of organized ways people are really thinking about heat like that and they're advocating for national legislation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's starting. This summer, we're at a really interesting inflection point this summer. On this, we've had all these extreme heat events, this heat dome, just the, everything from, you know, Canada having this extreme heat wave. The conversation is happening, but I don't think that it has been happening before in the way that it is now. And I think we might see that coming down the pipeline now. So, you know, at the federal level, for instance, the House Science Committee just had their first series of heat hearings on heat. There's a an infrastructure proposal that the Biden-Harris administration is considering, this urban smart surfaces proposal that would require all federal construction to consider things like heat and flooding when they, they choose surfaces and maybe choose impervious surfaces when at all possible. But in terms of sort of a grassroots, community-driven kind of social movement, you know, I haven't seen that, but I think as communities start to become more aware that that could happen. I mean, if I were a person living in a community that has inadequate cooling, access to cooling, and I saw the data, or I had access to the data, I would be mad. I mean, I'm mad for these communities like the community in Oasis that I was out in. So we're out in Oasis near the Sultan Sea doing extreme heat temperature measurements. It was so hot. We had to shut down our project early because people were starting to feel unwell on my research team. And that's a place that people live and they don't have access to air conditioning. And so, you know, I, I just think that we need people should be mad. I don't think they have have the the data in their hands yet to to understand how mad they should be, but <laughs> I think it's coming down the pipeline. Okay, so you mentioned the one by Biden Harris bill, but I, I'm thinking the larger, and I'm sure you haven't read it, but there's a larger infrastructure bill that it has a yes. good chance of passing. Have you heard much? Is that part of that, or is there other chatter of you like addressing heat within that bigger infrastructure bill? Yeah, that's um, that is a proposal to be embedded into the infrastructure okay. bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. We'll just piggyback on those other efforts. So, all right. Yeah, well, I like the idea of expanding infrastructure to have a larger definition. I think that's a really interesting sort of policy innovation that the administration has introduced. And so, yeah, thinking about cool infrastructure. I mean, that's one of the things we want to do with the heat mobility data is think, you know, maybe we don't just increase canopy, but we increase cool connectivity between sites where people are going. And that's part of our infrastructure. Like we need a network of bus stops and we need a network of shade. All right. So you'd mentioned just previously about the the, the heat waves in the, the, the in Canada, the Pacific Northwest, really just shocking. I think I heard one stat and I want to confirm it, but it was just like it was a one in a hundred thousand year event. So yeah. Yeah. wasn't even wasn't a one in 500 years. So that, that was pretty shocking. But I'm curious as someone who deals with heat and LA thinks about it a lot more than Seattle, but what were you thinking when all that unfolded and, and how did you think the media did covering the topic? That's a really interesting question. What did I think when all that unfolded is my mind immediately goes to what we know that places that are historically 
cool are less prepared in a lot of ways. Just, just like, you know, if it, if it rains really hard or snows in the South, in the U S right. People are not, you know, one inch of snow can shut down a Southern city, but the same way, same thing goes for heat in Northern latitudes where people don't have access to air conditioning and maybe aren't prepared to recognize the signs of heat exhaustion or heat stroke in their bodies. And so, you know, my, that was one of my thoughts is that this is, you know, we know this is going to be bad because these are areas where people aren't prepared. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I was really happy that it got so much media attention. I do worry a little bit that the term extreme heat is one framing and that that will lead us down, you know, further down this extreme heat event type of planning and the types of regulation that that opens up. So what what I kind of took out of it too, I thought a lot of the media coverage was really good. You got obscure stories that were very interesting too. Well, you know, I, and so I thought that was good and the people are trying to figure it out. And I'm obviously not in the space of extreme heat, but I would hope now that Seattle, they got just walloped with this, that you know, maybe there'll be some innovative thinking on how to deal with heat. And hope you hopefully you'll cross paths with a lot of these people that they're just like, well, wait a sec, we've never had to think about this before. Because I think of cities like Tucson or Phoenix, even though they're dealing with heat all the time, you know, you're like, oh, well, you know, we're hot cities. And that, that you sometimes think people take it for granted. And maybe there's not as innovative approaches to maybe dealing with it. And maybe now that Seattle and Canada are going to be part of the, the, that, the group that are impacted by it, what kind of fresh new thinking is going to come? And maybe that's naive of me, but I'm hoping that's the case. No, I completely agree. And I think that there's a lot of fresh thinking needed in the heat management space. So one example that I would give is the idea of cooling centers. And we know that cooling centers are underutilized. And we know part of that is that people can't necessarily get to cooling centers or know where they are, or that people kind of default and go to like malls because they have air conditioning, but that's a private and consumptive space. But I, you know, I think about all the sort of, you know, why can't we make cooling centers fun? Why can't we have, you know, parks with temporary shade sales and temporary water features and music and food and make it a place that people want to come to spend time to get safe rather than thinking about it as like, you know, make make the heat intervention meet people and their public needs and not vice versa. Another kind of area of heat governance that could be interesting is that we have thresholds for landlords are required to make sure, you know, you can't have really freezing cold conditions in an apartment. But most cities, even cities like Los Angeles, don't have to have air conditioning in apartments. And, you know, that's maybe something I know that's a kind of political issue. But for those who are most vulnerable, we should accept this trade off, they need air conditioning to get to get their core temperature down cool enough to be safe. One of the things that you shared with me is it was some social media, it was social media paper, and I had to kind of reread things. It's very interesting. And I think ultimately, it was about naming blizzards. And then you guys were tracking how people respond. Give us a very brief overview of what that whole paper was about. So the Weather Channel decided at some point, this was maybe a little over a decade ago, that they wanted to name winter blizzards the same way we name um, hurricanes. And they said this was going to be a way for people to track winter blizzards more easily. However, there was it was kind of known that there was this undercurrent that it was also a publicity sort of PR thing. So there was a worry that this from NOAA and the National Weather Service that this would actually cause people to kind of amplify their response to blizzards in a way that maybe was not commensurate with actual risk from the blizzard conditions. And so NOAA and the National Weather Service was were very um, against this idea. And so what we were doing in that paper is examining whether or not naming had some effect on risk perception using sort of large-scale data web scraping technology. And this is something called the social amplification of risk theory. So this is the idea that sometimes public response can be amplified or attenuated compared to kind of an objective sort of standard of what the risk is. And we didn't really find much of a difference, quite frankly, and it was a really preliminary study. But this is something that we don't, I guess, I can look to the reason you're asking me is because we're talking about something called hashtag name the wave, should we be naming heat waves? And I think that's a really interesting social science question. We don't know if naming heat waves would cause folks 
to be more aware of the problem or to take protective action. But I think there's some interesting questions around messaging. And there's a lot of good social science in the communication space about what kind of messages are more likely to be transferred and acted upon. And I would love to see that. And I think uh, a lot of the controversy has been around using human names because of this sort of legacy of naming hurricanes. So for a long time, hurricanes only had female names and the way that hurricanes were talked about in the in the media, and I'm talking, this is like the early 1900s, mid 1900s, they were talked about in these really sexist and gendered ways. So it was a non-normative thing to name names. Now there are rules and regulations, you know, you can't name a hurricane after a sitting president, for instance. But the minute you anthropomorphize a biophysical phenomenon, you introduce a level of normativity there that wasn't before. And I think the folks that have proposed this have sort of stepped away from the idea of using the human names and are leaning in towards more like ranking heat waves and having some other kind of more systematic way of thinking about how severe a heat wave is. But it's a really interesting proposition. Okay, I guess I didn't hear that. So they're stepping away from naming because I guess I still see a bit of chatter about naming, but maybe it's not boy, I mean, a man or woman's name. But you yeah, know, and Dr. Lad Keith was on, we chatted a bit about this too. And I, and I want to keep talking about with my, my guests and such and like, is it a good idea or not? And he, beyond the naming and the cultural issues associated with that, there was all sorts of other reasons why it's potentially not a great idea because every region experiences, you know, heat a different way. And so as the media gets their head around it, like how useful is it really to sort of tell this one area that you've got this heat wave coming and all that. So it sounded like a bad idea for very complex and nuanced reasons. Yeah. I mean, how do you define a heat wave? What's the beginning? What's the end? It's not such a discrete thing like a hurricane that can be, you know, relatively well bounded. And another thing, you know, this is an interesting part of the conversation. You know, my personal feeling is we don't know if it will be helpful. And I would never advocate that, for instance, a city do some sort of built environment intervention without having data to support that this is going to be effective. And so it's really hard for me as a social scientist to say naming a heat wave is a good idea because I haven't seen data that it is to support that. And so that's one issue. But I think that on the other side, folks are saying, well, hurricanes, there was no data. This is just something that emerged and and was put forth and done for years and years without data. And it's something that we're still doing. Why can't we do it with heat? And, you know, I would come back and say, we're in a different time and era. And when you're going to ask NOAA and the National Weather Service to invest a lot of funds in creating the kind of social and political infrastructure to do this, I don't think they're going to be responsive if they don't see evidence that it's beneficial. That's sort of a hard ask of a group. You know, I grew up in Florida and so hurricanes were always there. And so it was front and center and you probably, we got a lot more discussion around it than maybe other parts of the country. And to be honest, I mean, the name you're like, okay, it allowed you to keep track to a certain extent, but the most useful bit of information when we were like, they were communicating with the public was just the category. You know, it's like a category one. It's like, well, we want to be on a lookout, but when it got up to category five, then you start thinking, am I going to have to evacuate and all that? So that was the most useful bit of information when they were like targeting a specific hurricane. The name was, that's, it was such a sort of a superfluous way of keeping track of it. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree that the categories are going to be super helpful, but again, you know, that has to be carefully designed and there are some sort of pilot programs in terms of ranking heat waves that are out there, but you know, different populations experience those sort of levels of heat differently, different regions. It depends on humidity. You know, the devil's going to be in the details, but I agree that that is way more useful than, than a particular name. It's interesting. I was in the Midwest. I used to be at Kent State University and they had these toxic algal blooms and the one of them ended up getting named and there were all these memes about the name of that particular algal bloom so there is something to the name you know people can connect with a name however as sort of the 
flagship policy. I think that we have ideas about things that really need to be done. Like if we wanted to save lives right now, we would give those who have the fewest resources, air conditioning and shade. That's going to protect people's bodies and stop people from dying. What was interesting about hurricanes too, because you could see them like you have so much time they develop out there in the Atlantic. And so that, that name or whatever, it just develops personality just based on the media coverage. And so you have so much time as you're preparing for it. And what I was thinking, it, what was interesting about the Pacific Northwest heat wave is that when you think of heat waves, it's like you'd look like a week out, maybe if you're lucky, like in Tucson and be like, oh, in five days, it's going to be 105. Mm. The, whoever was doing it, I mean, obviously the National Weather Service, whatever, but like it felt like a week and a half, two weeks that they were predicting this Pacific North heat wave. I'd never, like, I, I guess, seen that kind of coverage where they were so sure about this heat wave so far in advance. And that, that was very interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So we're at the end here. And if people want to learn more about what you do, and I, and I guess first off, just what's next for you next, you know, I know you're doing all sorts of research, but next six months, but um, you have new responsibilities now, but what, what's, what's your research looking like? Yeah, right now I'm trying to bridge the gap between these land surface temperature maps that are currently guiding decision making and the kind of hyper local decisions that cities are actually need information about. So most of my projects are at the super micro level, trying to understand how the microcosms of the built environment and all the complexities, how we can help design better cooling interventions in cities. And also looking, you know, I've got some interesting stuff going on with kind of the historical production of heat. So, you know, we know that redlining, you know, segregation caused by redlining has sort of segregated the city and heat exposure. But, you know, I'm working with a historian who contends that redlining is just part of the picture and that these sort of micro decisions about, you know, how wide should we make the road? How tall should these buildings be? All these like really small decisions. Those those are also racialized and trying to unpack that. And then, you know, also trying to work through my position at Luskin Center to make heat a central part of the conversation in, in the policy realm and to have really honest conversations there through some, you know, we have some workshops planned coming up. So I actually have a lot of students, be it undergrad or graduate students who listen, or they're looking at schools to go to. Any sort of plug you can give for UCLA, I guess, if it's they're interested in getting to the heat space of adaptation, your, your, your school is a good one to go to? Yeah, absolutely. We've we have a lot of, especially if um, you're interested in sort of the social science questions around heat, whether that's heat equity or if that's policy governance economics, I think there's a huge opening and opportunity for someone who wants to do the economics of heat. For instance, I've been collaborating with the Trust for Public Land on their greening schoolyards program. And, you know, they have all these questions about what is, what is the financial cost that we can bring to like Los Angeles School District, LAUSD um, to kind of, you know, because money talks, right? So anyway, my plug is if you're interested in the social science of sort of heat governance, UCLA is a great place to be. And specifically, the Luskin Center has a number of research programs where we match students with stakeholders to do kind of actionable research. And we have have some fellowships around environmental justice that are opportunities for students. So yes, come to UCLA and study with me. I'd be happy to have you. I've been on campus for a recording. It's a gorgeous cam- campus. It's a cool area. So yeah, definitely plugging it. Literally and figuratively. Right. <laughs> okay. Final question. If you could recommend one person to come on this podcast, who would it be? Oh, well, in the heat space, I would ask you to bring on my colleague, Ariana Medell, to talk about Marty and all of the you know, work she's doing out in the field to understand the microclimate situation for communities. Cool. Great. Okay, Kelly, this has been fantastic. I want to continue to cover heat because I've been very remiss in how I've been doing the podcast for four years and I only have like three episodes on extreme heat. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Kelly for coming on and sharing her research and experience around heat. I think Kelly's right that this summer we've turned a corner around how we view the threats of extreme heat. The heat wave in the Pacific Northwest will hopefully bring in some new and innovative thinking around managing for heat. As the earth warms, creating a robust policy infrastructure will be critical. I thought it was fascinating to hear from Kelly that we lack a governance structure around heat. We have it for air and water. Hopefully, we'll see an emerging grassroots advocacy movement around dealing with this issue, especially since it overlaps so clearly with climate and environmental justice issues. And those are increasingly 
important to policymakers. Definitely check out some of Kelly's work in my show notes for this episode. Related to heat, in my earlier episode with Dr. Ladd Keith, Ladd and I discussed an article that Jeff Goodell of Rolling Stone Magazine wrote about air conditioning and the problems associated with it as an adaptation measure. I was able to connect with Jeff after I released it, and he listened to the episode and felt we didn't capture some of the key points from his article. I wanted to give a correction here, just so Jeff's points were made. We interpreted that he was suggested that fans could be a replacement for air conditioning. That isn't what he was suggesting. He was trying to highlight a study that corrected the mistaken idea that fans do more harm than good. Ladd and I also mentioned that fans would simply not be an effective tool in places like Tucson, and Jeff actually made that point in his original piece. Jeff, my apologies for this misinterpretation of the article. The issue of air conditioning as an adaptation tool to climate change has come up again and again. I think all of us are going to have to think about it in the context of energy use and for more immediate public health needs. Like many things in the adaptation space, very complicated. That said, Jeff is always writing the most interesting climate pieces. I suggest you check out his work. Okay, final housekeeping. I want to thank all my supporters who have generously donated to the podcast. Thank you. This is a small-time operation and your support is critical. For those who are regular listeners and are looking for a charity to donate to, consider America Daps. It's actually a 501c3 and be part of telling these adaptation stories. All right, related to that, if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Daps. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. So for example, UCLA sponsored me to do several episodes around adaptation in California. At the time, I traveled on location to interview experts they wanted me to include as part of the episode. Usually those episodes have quite a few expert guests. So basically, they are sponsoring an entire episode to share their particular story. And I've done these with the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, University of Florida, and multiple other nonprofits. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them with their grants. Consider budgeting in a podcast instead of a white paper. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than those white papers or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. So I've been doing these remotely for the past year in these sponsored episodes, but I've recently completed my vaccinations and I'm slowly thinking about getting to travel. Hold that thought. You know, when I put this in there, I had robust fall plans to travel and do those kind of things. But with the Delta variant raging, plans are being canceled. I'm we're back to not really traveling much, I don't think. Greatly disappointing. We'll get around this corner at some point. If you're not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. It's going to be the fastest pathway out of this mess. And so that said, I still do these remotely. And so let me know. Reach out at americadaps at gmail.com. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing some work with Simpatico Studios, doing some streaming TV. I have a climate adaptation channel, and I'm talking to similar people that come on the podcast, but actually quite a bit broader spectrum, talking to people in clean energy tech, still academics, people all over the world. So definitely go check out Simpatico dot tv and maybe you want to be a guest or maybe you just want to consume the material there but definitely check it out also if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event even virtually reach out i speak a lot i love doing this i share stories from the podcast and my own policy experiences in adaptation so again reach out at americadaps at gmail.com okay folks you know it's coming i love hearing from you i always hear from people after each episode and usually it's someone new and they're always doing something interesting or they're telling me why they like the podcast podcast or they give me feedback on what they want me to do differently, please take the time. It is the highlight of my week. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com for the third time. Definitely send me a note. Let me know. You're on your phone. It's easy enough to do. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.